Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hello listeners, I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring Iron Butterfly, a joint series from the Amazing Women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason University. The podcast features incredible stories from women across the United States intelligence community. In just a minute, we're going to play an episode from the series called Dragon Six, which features a conversation with Mary Legere, a retired lieutenant general whose 34 years in the military culminated in her serving as Army Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence. But first, Iron Butterfly host Megan Jaffer spoke with FP Playlist about the mission of the podcast and how the series came to be. Hi, my name is Megan Jaffer, and I'm the host of Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. Our podcast features conversations with incredible IC women who are diverse in every sense of the word. To name a few, we feature the stories of Tish, the first woman to lead a major three-letter agency, Marjorie, the first woman case officer to give birth overseas, Maria, who collected evidence from the rubble after 9-11, Yvette, who was in Berlin when the wall fell. Suzanne, who did the hokey pokey in the mountains of Kazakhstan, and even Jenny, who left her mark on the National Security Council, literally. We like to explore the stories that shape these incredible women and the key decisions they made along the way that shaped them professionally and personally. We hope that our listeners will be inspired by the heroism of these women and see themselves in challenges that these senior IC professionals have faced. The episode we are sharing is our conversation with retired Lieutenant General Mary Legere. Lieutenant General Legere spent 34 years in the Army, culminating as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence. She also served as the commander of the Army Intelligence and Security Command and the Senior Military Intelligence Officer in Iraq and the Republic of Korea. In this conversation, she reflects on commanding 
58,000 intelligence officers, lessons learned in tough leadership roles, and the importance of bringing Girl Scout cookies to hard conversations. At the end of every episode, we ask each guest what their code name would be and why. So stay tuned to hear why Lieutenant General Legere thinks hers would be Dragon Six. That was Megan Jaffer. And here now is the episode Iron Butterfly, Dragon Six. Welcome to Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this week's episode of the Iron Butterfly podcast, we are joined by Lieutenant General Retired Mary Legere. Mary spent 34 years in the Army, culminating as the Army Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, or G2. She also served as the commander of the Army Intelligence and Security Command, INSCOM, and the Senior Military Intelligence Officer in Iraq and the Republic of Korea. Mary currently works as the Managing Director at Accenture Federal Services. We are so excited to have you today, Mary. Thanks for joining us. Well, Megan, thanks. I'm really honored to be part of the podcast. This is such a wonderful forum for us to just explore how the impact of women in Intel. So thank you for including me. I'm really humbled to be here today. Uh, Well, we are humbled to have you. So let's just get started by telling us about your journey into the IC. Some of our listeners might not know that in third grade, you were voted most likely to take over a country. Um, But when did you actually decide you wanted to be an intelligence officer? Right. Well, thanks for that. I I will say just a little bit of background. I am one of five children in my family, four brothers, uh, raised by a mother and father that were really determined to make sure that there were no uh, sort of gender biases. So they were very conscious about that. My mother was one of 13 and six, seven boys, six girls, and her uh, siblings were also raised in an environment, even though this was, you know, in the 40s and 50s, where, you know, the woman and the girls in the family were uh, expected to aspire to professions or aspire to, you know, accomplishment in life, just as the boys were. And I think my mother carried that into my childhood. My father was raised by two wonderful parents, but a very strong mother who eventually had to support her family when my grandfather had a stroke. And so she, for the last 10 years of his life, um, supported her, herself and her family in New York City. So I, I would say that one of the things that makes my story possible is the circumstance of luck and the fact that I was born to a very strong set of parents that you know, when they looked across the table at their five children, my father would say, you're our only hope for early retirement, because in me, 
as somebody that, you know, that was ambitious, uh, took responsibility, liked to join things, but I, I, I never understood I was supposed to sit in the back of the class and not raise my hand. Um, I had all the characteristics that my brothers had in terms of, you know, being interested in sports and being interested in joining things and being parts of things. And so I would say my journey to a military career, which is the sort of indirect way that I found my way into intelligence, uh, began when I was born into a squad of with four brothers uh, who didn't want their sister to ever fall behind or throw like a girl. Uh, and so I grew up in a, a very athletic, um, academically focused family where my mother and father you know, really impressed upon me very early on that you, the life you make is the one you choose to make, mm-hmm. that you're, you've been given, you know, some gifts, all, all of us. And it's kind of something we'll talk about, but, you know, we're all giving parts of us that are going to contribute and make us special. It's your job to find that and then to follow that. And um, so my father was very uh, encouraging whenever I had an idea about a profession. We had to work out the priest thing. I grew up in a Roman Catholic family. I didn't realize that girls couldn't be priests until he sort of said, well, there's another career option. It's called nuns. And my response to that was, oh, dad, I don't think I'm going to wear those shoes because we <laughs> were wonderful nuns, but they had the old order. And ironically, of course, the nuns wear exactly what I wore as combat boots. They were exactly the same footwear. Um, but so I early on thought there's no profession that's close to me. Um, I had my father was not someone who would call himself a veteran easily. He he was 17 at the end of World War II and volunteered. He came out of college in 1945, was very smart, very academically inclined. And the Navy put him in training and the war ended while he was still in the midst of some training. And they were like, Bill, we love to keep you. And his mother from New York City said, and put that young man on the train. He's coming back to college. So he was in World War II at the very end of the war, but didn't you know, get into theater. When Korea War happened, my father at that point was a father and a teacher. And they recalled him into the Navy to teach um, and to be part of the recruitment process. So when I talked to him about his service, as a veteran of two wars, he, like most of the people in his generation, doesn't compare himself in the way that my mother's brothers and one of his sisters served in overseas tours. But the idea of serving in the military, because my father's my, of my father's experience, but also my aunts and uncles on my mother's side, uh, all of the boys in that family served. I had an idea that that might be a potential path to a profession. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something I talked a lot to my parents about. It was something that was kind of there. I grew up in New Hampshire, uh, not far from an Air Force base and a nuclear sub base. Ironically, I'm in the Army. Um, (laughs) I'll tell you how that happened. So I was was surrounded by military kids, and I met their parents. And there was an impression that was forming that if I want to see the world, if I want to really understand the world and get beyond, you know, where I am here in New England, um, my parents did as much travel as a middle class family could do. But I really want was curious about the world that the military might be something that I would that I would look into. But I never said it out loud. It was just something that I knew um, as an athlete and as a good student, it might be an option that's available to me. So I arrived at my, you know, at the University of New Hampshire, uh, not my first choice. I love the university. I'm so proud of my degree and my experience there. 
But honestly, I would have liked to have gone away to school, but my family couldn't afford it. You know, mm-hmm. I went, you know, I went to the place that my family could afford. There were five of us, four of us were going to hit college around the same times. Poor planning. Uh, <laughs> spread us out a little bit. And my father actually worked at the University of New Hampshire through public broadcasting. So I had an opportunity for half tuition, which was going to make a huge difference if I was paying for it myself. And it was at that point, I was playing basketball, I was studying political science. Um, I was really interested in a course of national security. And I couldn't get into the one that was offered in the political science curriculum because it was a higher level course, but they had one in ROTC. Hmm. Thought, well, I'm going to check this out. I can go check out ROTC and I can take a course that is going to be interesting to me because I really wanted to understand political systems, comparative politics, and the idea of national security. Intel hadn't entered my mind yet, but I really had an interest in this. And so I signed up for ROTC as a freshman. And the reason I ended up in the Army and not the Air Force, we have a really good Air Force ROTC program at UNH. It's right near a strategic bombing base. One would think that would be true. And we had a very good Army ROTC program. And the day I went over to audit, to get permission to audit the course, because I was not committing, I was just going to take the course and alone. Um, I noticed that the Air Force cadets were in uniform. This was in the late 70s. They're in their class B uniforms and they were marching and they weren't marching particularly well. Um, I looked over and there was this railroad bridge and there were ROTC Army cadets in t-shirts and kind of fatigues at the time. And they were rappelling off the bridge of the railroad bridge. And I thought, ha, Army ROTC might get to do some cool rappelling. Air Force ROTC might have to do some marching. If both are equal and I can get this course in either one, I think I'm going to go with the Army because it looks like they do more outdoors. Now, the irony, of course, is they always rappel with the freshmen in ROTC so it can (laughs) before they expose you to the hard stuff of patrolling through the woods in the middle of the winter. And as my friends in the Air Force would tell me later, hey, we only march like once every six months. You just <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I got enrolled in ROTC and I really enjoyed the national security course. And I think I shared this story with you. Um, I was walking out of one of my comparative politics class with this great professor that I really admired. And he struck up a conversation. I was a freshman. So, you know, professors generally know some of their class, but really they're freshmen. And he said, Mary, I understand you're in ROTC. And I said, well, I'm auditing and I'm, I'm interested in some of their national security courses. And they had a history course on Vietnam, which was, you know, sort of a new curriculum. And, you know, in the late 70s, I was trying to get my mind around that whole conflict. And he said, well, you know, I'm in the military. And I was like kind of surprised. He said, I'm a Naval Reserve Intelligence Officer. I was a captain, so a colonel at the Army level. He'd been in for 35 or 25 years. And he was one of the most respected Kremlinologists who understood Soviet studies and the succession of Soviet leadership, which is, you know, that's a little bit like learning Farsi in in a way. Right. Stands on that part of the podium. So he must be taking over the country. (laughs) So Dr. Trout and I walked for 10 minutes, and in that 10 minutes, he explained about the intelligence community, that in each service, there was an intelligence core um, that contributed intelligence professionals in different disciplines to their specific service, but also to this thing, which was sort of amorphous, 
called the intelligence community and the national security community. And he said, so you're pulling some of these pieces together because, you know, he knew which courses I was taking. And he said, you really should think about if you're going to be in the Army, if you're going to pursue an ROTC scholarship, which I would ultimately do that year, I would, you know, declare, you know, I would take enroll in the course and I was offered an opportunity to compete for a scholarship. He said, you should ask your, ask your ROTC cadre about the intelligence corps and have them put you in touch with somebody that can explain how the Army uses its intelligence officers. He said, I can help you with how the Navy does it and, you know, the Marine Corps and Air Force. And then he said something that was really important. He said, Mary, it's, there are a lot of branches in the service and there's a lot of specialties in the service. But to be an intelligence professional, you have to be a very good student and you have to be very competitive. So he said, I'm not just saying that because I want you to pick the pace up in class. <laughs> in the great people that will be in ROTC, many will want to be infantry or aviation or field artillery, but many, many people like you with liberal arts backgrounds or computer science or math backgrounds will want to be intelligence officers and you need to be competitive. For an 18-year-old who was going to make this decision without any parental consultant, he was one of the most important, that was one of the most important discussions of my life. And it was in 10 minutes and then he was off to his next class and I was off to basketball practice. So I really took that on as my job because I, at that point, you know, I was leaning toward competing for the scholarship. I would ultimately win that scholarship. And then I knew for three years, I not only had to be a good student, I had to be a great cadet. I had to be somebody they could count on as, a, as an evolving leader so that I could be competitive and, and ultimately do well and win one of those opportunities to be in the intelligence corps. So it was 18 and it was a September conversation, um, repelling or, or uh, marching and a professor that took the time to just share a little of his story because he noticed me sitting in the front of the class, curious and asking questions. And I'm so grateful to him um, for that. You know what I think is so amazing about that story and what I just kept thinking while you were telling it is that, you know, that was 10 minutes of your life with one per one professor changing the course of your life by giving by giving you his advice. And now you are doing that for all of the listeners that are going to be listening to that, uh, yeah. to this this episode. And it's I think it's it's um, profound the inf the influence we can have on others to encourage them to follow what, what might be unspoken our ability to have a positive word with someone to say hey that's not crazy follow that belief and then for him to connect some things for me um i'm so grateful because he was right 3 years later i i did need to have kind of the resume of a, not a, I wasn't a great cadet, but I worked hard in my, you know, and I, and I, and anything I knew was going to be a problem for me, I attacked that gap. And I partnered with other cadets to help close gaps that, you know, I knew I was going to be tested on these things. And I had a wonderful political science classmate who was a former Westbourner. He was there for a few years and then decided due to personal reasons to leave West Point and come to UNH. I was a good political science student. He was a masterful cadet. We talked one day in class and he said, look, we're in ROTC together. Um, I will help you get ready for advanced camp because I'm going to be going to ranger school. 
you will help me get through this, these two poli-sci classes that I'm completely lost on. So I read all his papers and he took me on all the forced marches. Um, he prepared me as if I was going to ranger school. We were friends and we, you know, I showed up when he needed me to be there. I showed up and he taught me all the technical things I needed to know. And again, that was one of those serendipitous things where somebody reaches out to say, Mary, I need help. And mm -hmm. you so let's like work together. And, you know, we would end up both, he made it through ranger school. I, I was at airborne school and walked right by him. He was so thin. I didn't recognize him. <laughs> we ended up as seniors being co-commanders. Uh, so we ended up helping each other get the starts we needed in our military career. So it's another one of those cool, like people really help each other make dreams. Wow. What a great, what a great introduction story. Um, so, you know, you've, you've shared with us about how you started, but, you know, why did you decide to stay for a career that spanned over 30 years in the, the intelligence field? Um, and how did you manage your career throughout that time? Yeah, so I fell in love with two things. Um, I fell in love with the Army. Let's be really clear. If you were to ask me how I self-identify, I self-identify as an intelligence officer and an Army soldier. I fell in love with the army. Um, and I, I won, like I got the Disneyland all day pass because when I got commissioned, I got to go to Fort Huachuca. I was a signal intelligence officer, which is an amazing career. Um, I couldn't for the life of me figure out how my liberal artist background, communications, political science, dual major with thing in history had me heading towards signals intelligence. I would have thought counterintelligence, human intelligence. Right write well, I speak well, I understand people. They thought communications meant I understand uh, electrical, uh, the theories of electricity. They were disappointed. And so <laughs> um, but the opportunity, as you would find in a career in Intel, you're going to start with one discipline and it's hopefully going to either, you're going to go deep into that discipline or like me and like many intelligence officers in the army, you're going to have an opportunity through a course of 10 years to experience different disciplines and ultimately settle on the thing that really excites you. Um, so I, one, I've, I've, I fell in love with Intel and I also, you know, it was a little, my husband and I met my husband in uh, the university of New Hampshire. He was an, he was going to ultimately be an army engineer officer. We would spend the next five years of our marriage or got married right after I graduated from school we spent the first five years of our marriage in different parts of Germany and different parts of the United States. So we didn't have any stress in the first five years of our marriage. We literally didn't live together. It was always like, I can't wait to see you. A massive phone bills. Lieutenants don't make much money, but we, we worked it out. But we both, we went to, you know, I convinced Paul that we were going to go to Germany. We were going to give, we were both on scholarship. They said, we owe four years of the best four years we can give. And then at a certain point, we'll make decisions as to whether you go off and be a civil engineer. And if I like this Intel thing, I think I can parlay this into potentially a career in the Intel community on the civilian side, maybe with one of the agencies. So we sort of had an idea that we had a midpoint decision. And I, I told him, I said, it's like the communists. They make big decisions every five years. We have a five-year plan. <laughs> little shorter. It's a four-year plan. I fell in love with the Army. And what I realized about the Army was I was going to get to do intelligence, but I was also going to be every year given a new leadership opportunity that was going to force me to grow. And part of my personality is to like, it's like, okay, I've been up that hill. 
now I know how to get up the hill. Can I get a few more people up the hill? Can they be confident leading people up the hill? Now, what, what's my next hill? And I like that constant change. I, mm-hmm. part of my personality. And I love that about the army that I was becoming not only a good intelligence professional, but I was being taken through the army's leadership school of learning to think beyond yourself to that platoon and that company and that team and that organization that counts on you to not only take care of business, but to develop others. So I knew I could manage an intelligence career that would give me great variety. Paul and I would go from Europe to Korea, to Colorado. We went to Korea three times. We figured out married people that want to stay together should volunteer to go to Korea. (laughs) They'll have you on orders before you finish the word. We will go to if we can be together. Went three times. I have a total of 10 years, three different tours, vary from, from company grade up to the J2 of the theater. Incredible. Three different periods, three different decades, but an incredible place to be an intelligence professional, an incredible place to be an engineer because you're constantly blowing things up or building things. Mm -hmm. So we fell in love with the army. We're thoughtful about each other's careers and thought, you know, as long as we can do things together and continue to reach our own potential, we'll support each other. So I I think that was a kind of a, one of the, the, a question I, I wanted to ask as well is, you know, you mentioned your husband and and he and how lovely he was and he's also had a very successful military career mm-hmm. and you know i think you're speaking a little bit to it now but um you know how did you guys end up balancing that um yeah. obviously you guys had great communication you shared that with us um well what- well no we learned great communication i talked <laughs> to him <laughs> let's <laughs> okay gotcha. as, as women often have to translate both sides of the conversation for their husband what you mean to say to me is this right but no I would I would say this unequivocally and I've said this publicly I would never have achieved the rank of three-star general in the army without making a choice that I made at 20 21 and that was to commit myself to to Paul and we, we were partners He gave me confidence when I had no confidence. He supported every decision about, you know, he he helped me understand as an army officer, he understood the environment of a a female officer that was mostly outnumbered at a period where you're negotiating woman being brought into combat arms units for the first time, you're the female or you're in intel units and you're 15% or less. He was that ally that said, Mary, you belong here. You're as tough a soldier as they are. You're also, you care about your soldiers. That's what matters the most. I know I married a principal leader um, who I could model after. And I'm hoping, you know, he always, you know, we were different in our leadership style, but we have a fundamental love of our people and it comes through by taking care of them. And um, so I think, it was this great question. I was in a, I was at a, in a, in a, in a group of a thousand women and it was down at Fort uh, Stewart, Georgia. And it was um, now Lieutenant General retired Nadia West who became the Surgeon General um, and myself. And we were addressing a group of a woman in the 24th Infantry Division. And it was at a time when we were going to be putting women into combat arms in all specialties. And the army wisely was 
bringing women leaders and men leaders together to talk about some of the challenges we should anticipate so that we don't walk ourselves into things we could have anticipated. And it was about soldier and woman, you know, sister bonds. It was an organization that was like AWIC created by women with the encouragement of their male mentors. So they would have outlets to do, you know, to help each other with problems that were unique to them, but also bring strength to each other. And so we were invited down as two people, two leaders who had, you know, gone 30 years through our careers and managed to to deal with some of the things they were going to be dealing with. And there was a question that said, it was from a young woman. She was married and she said, you know, my husband doesn't always support me. You know, sometimes he, he's a military person, I'm a military person. And he doesn't always see that my career is, is important and we, we, we need to compromise, but, 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 but I don't get that. And Nadia and I both said, you know, one of the most important things we did is we both got lucky with the people we married. We never competed against each other. We always supported each other. Mm-hmm. She and I had spent very little time together before then. And it was almost like this mirror image that she had made a really good choice as a young person, as said I, your partners need to be part of it. And if you're lucky enough, and not everyone is, but if you're lucky enough to have somebody that is behind you and encourages you and you do the same, you're not selfish, you do the same for them. There's a chance you're going to come out of it, um, you know, at the end together. We had many ups and downs, but one of the things I am proud about in my career, one of the things I'm proud about in my life is, you know, the person that I, you know, grew up with is still person that you know makes me laugh and is going to break in at any point during this this podcast thank you for sharing that i mean i think that's such a a personal story it's it's very personal and i i appreciate you sharing that with with me and and the, the listeners we'll be right back after this break Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. The Horn of Africa is in turmoil. From the Sudanese revolution that toppled a dictator, to civil war in Ethiopia, and the jostling of foreign powers. The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group that unpacks it all. Dive deep into the geopolitics and diplomacy with host Alan Boswell and expert guests throughout the region. Listen to The Horn wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I want to tell you about a podcast that we have been listening to lately. It's called World Affairs, and it gives you the tools and context you need to navigate a hot, crowded planet like this one. Every week, World Affairs brings you stories that cross borders and ideologies and break down what it means to be a global citizen. World Affairs, making sense of a changing world one story at a time. Search for World Affairs, that's one word, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for a thoughtful podcast that helps you understand the world? 
We recommend G Zero World, where Ian Bremmer goes in depth with thought leaders and policymakers weekly. From Christine Lagarde to Adam Grant, guests bring global insight that you won't want to miss. Subscribe to G Zero World with Ian Bremmer wherever you get your podcasts or listen at g0media.com. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about leadership. And I know that leadership is very important to you. Where did you learn to be, you know, it sounds like a simple question, but where did you learn to be such a great leader? And and who were your role models? Um, who did you model your leadership style after? Yeah, I, I'd like to think I'm an amalgamation of like so many people I've worked for. I'd like to think that one of the things that I, I tried to be is something my mother taught me about different teachers as I was getting ready to go into elementary school. And I had a teacher and I wasn't sure about that teacher. And my mother kind of put me at ease and said, look, you're going to learn something from each of them. They're each going to be different. And what you want to do is learn to take the best of all of them and, and learn how you're going to meet their expectations because that's what life's going to be like. And so it gets me back. So I, I know I am a, I am a, amalgamation of the best leaders. I would, I, I feel so grateful that in my 34 years in the military and now with Accenture, I've been purposefully looking for and surrounding myself and seeking to work with great leaders, but great leaders have also been presented to me. And, and I've had the chance to look at the way they, you know, inspire and envision and drive change and look after people and try to say, you know, wow, that's something I'd like to, to, to put in my own kit bag. And so when I, you asked me the question, who are the most important leaders? There are a few that change my, change my energy and trajectory as a leader that made me different, that my experiences with them made me be relentless about going after a degree of excellence in myself and in others that I, you know, they know who they are. Um, they lived it. They taught, I watched the way they ran the organization. I was part of those organizations. In one case, it was a brigade commander. In another case, it was a division commander. And I was watching them bring creativity and standards of excellence at scale. I was fascinated by that. Sometimes you can get pockets of it, but how do you get the whole organization behind the energy of making something great. And I had really important experiences in my military career where I watched and experienced and was exposed to that kind of leadership. And it changed me. It, you know, I tried to be part of the solution. And when I was privileged enough to take over organizations, those were important principles to me. Get everybody involved, value everybody. You know, what I used to tell the Intel soldiers in my, you know, the 1st Cavalry Intelligence Brigade Battalion, I said, if you don't know the name of every mechanic and every supply clerk um, in our unit and value the fact that you can't get out to position without them being superb, if you don't know the communicators that support us, if we don't know the combat arms guys that will protect us when we get out just a little bit too far, it's like, hey, I can hear everything that's happening on the other side, but guess what? They're on top of us, so come get us. <laughs> You know, everybody's on the team and tried and, and create this family of your organization where it's not just the Intel stars that are appreciated. It's not just the superstar, you know, um, collector or the analyst who always gets to be in front of the boss. It's actually 
the IT person that makes it possible for every day you to sign on and get into your networks. It's actually the mechanic. And as I said, when they give us soldiers, my Intel soldiers would complain, particularly my Arabic linguist. How come we have to spend so much time in the motor pool? I'm like, look, we only spend Mondays. If you do it right, you're only here one day. If you do it poorly, you'll be here every day. I said, but, you know, on the stretch limo drives you into position so you can do your intercept operations, then you'll stop being here. I said, but when we have something you're responsible for fixing, you might want to know what to do. So in any event, I think that she set the stage. And my father, who always hears me we'll talk about my mother, what I learned from him, first and foremost, he it was incredibly important to my development. He took charge of ensuring he exposed me to good writing, to good books. From the time I was seven, he was picking out books for me. If I was interested in something, he would expose me to good writing. If I thought there was a profession I had some interest in, he would direct me toward that. So he was responsible for sparking my imagination, but he was also in his own right somebody that was immensely well-organized, strategic in his thinking, could understand how, if you need this result, how you bring the pieces together. He was extreme, where my mother was quite skilled from a, um, understanding how to motivate, train, and inspire people. My father understood that as well as the mechanics of driving change, and I learned from him. So what an advantage of growing up. Wow, with- yeah. I didn't know that was happening, but when I reflect that things that felt easy to me when I moved into my organization of where I felt like I never got arrogant. It was like, wow, this feels easy to me working hard at this. This is something I love and enjoy. And I watch other people struggle. I reflect back. These are lessons I learned before I left the house. And then I learned to also my mother's advice of every leader you're exposed to good or bad is going to teach you something about themselves, also about you. So if you're experiencing bad leader, don't fight it. Help that leader be successful to the extent that that badness or that that that, that lack of talent may be um, uh, insecurity. How do you put that leader at ease and do everything you can to contribute to making it better? But Mary, how are you experiencing that leadership? And do you ever want to ex- have anybody else experience? Exactly. hundred so, percent. I, I think yeah. it's so important. I think people overlook that when they have a bad job um, and they have a bad boss. Um, you know, I think you learn sometimes more from those experiences than from a good leader um, because you recognize this is when I'm in that position, this is what I don't want to do. This is how I don't want my people to feel. One of the reoccurring themes of our first season of the podcast was, um, you know, that leadership involves making hard decisions. And, um, you know, everyone has a different approach to how they how they deal with that, in a, in, especially in a very senior position. So can you share with us a story um, about one of the hardest decisions you've had to make as a leader? As a new J2 in Korea, um, one of the things that I had to do was um, defend the intel structure with my four-star. And my four-star, you know, at the time who I had had a really close relationship with, I'd been his special assistant for a year. And prior to that, I had been the initiatives director um, or initiatives group director. So kind of the strategic thinker that supported the four-star. 
Um, he was in a period where he was having to look at force structure in Korea and make decisions about what stayed and what didn't so that we had the right numbers and right puts and takes for what the alliance needed, what we needed repositioned elsewhere. And um, it was, you know, without getting into the details of the story, because, you know, they're not important now. I found myself in direct opposition with a four-star that, whose intellect I admired, who had a force of will that I admired. But I also understood that in my position as the senior intelligence officer in Korea, some of his ideas were not maybe in the best interest long-term of what we needed. And I had been in Korea longer. So I questioned, am I, you know, I've gone native and, and, and am I thinking about this? So I have a bias that is based on that, 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 that in other words, I'm too comfortable with the way it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm not looking at this from his perspective. So one, I challenged myself to see if I could find a way to yes with him, but also preserve those things that I thought he would and, 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 and communicate those things to him that I thought were important. And it was a really contentious public fight where I felt really beat up by somebody I admired very much. The way I kind of got at the problem was first, I tried to look at it from his perspective, the things that he was trying to balance in ways. So I tried to look at it strategically, why he felt strongly about it. I actually reached out to intelligence professionals that had worked with him before to get an understanding of his perceptions. Mm -hmm. So if we were reinforcing things that he thought were not positive and that perhaps there was another way to look at it. Um, and so I did my homework to understand the leader I was trying to, in some cases, educate and inform or persuade. And also I learned to let go of the personal angst because I could tell you know, I, I was fearful and emotional that, hey, I can't not deliver on this. This is kind of important. I've got the DNI and USDI and the IC, and I have a job to do. And that's why I have this position that I'm up against something. And I did reach out to the leaders in the IC to help me understand if I was just being too, um, you know, I was being very biased or limited in my thinking. And ultimately, you know, you never tell a story that doesn't have a happy ending. Um, we found our way to yes. We found a way to understand each other's positions. I'm glad I had that experience with, with a leader that, candidly, it was really hard. You know, I lost confidence in myself for a bit. I was feeling pretty beat up. I was worried for my staff and my people about an outcome that I thought would not be positive for the theater and for my boss and for our position. Um, and I wasn't sure I would have the wherewithal and the ability to, and his time and patience to, to, to train and discover and to look for other options. Um, so it was certainly not predestined that it was going to come out well. That helped me every time I was faced with hard decisions where I found myself speaking truth to power. Mm -hmm. And the, the other side to it had a very well-formed point of view, because many cases we are looking at just different points of view. There's no truth in this case. It's one way of doing it or the other. And you feel strongly about one. They feel strongly about the other. And actually, they both have validity. But how you manage yourself as a leader, how you manage your people who are doing the staff work, the make the arguments and not have them get discouraged or lose faith in the leaders or themselves I would have to repeat that 
from, I was a one star then, I retired as a three star. It would be seven years as a general officer on hard issues time and time and time again. I often reflected back on that first real encounter with opposition where so much was at stake and it was going to require everything I had to pull together an argument that would help my boss move off center. And um, he taught me a lot. He was patient and we learned together. He turned me into, you know, he, he helped me develop as a leader. Ultimately, you know, w- where we came to on the decision, I think ultimately proved to be useful for both of us. I think we found a way to yes. I think when you're, you're faced with this hard problem, you know, it's easy to think this person's wrong or I'm right. And what you were saying was, look, there was validity on both sides. So I had to manage myself and see how can we come together? How can we come to a yes on both sides? So I love how you, um, how you laid that out. Yeah. And I guess from an Intel perspective, that lesson, when I became the J2 in Iraq, you know, I left Korea and then went over and had six months as the deputy and then a year as the J2. Um, Our analyst you know, obviously these amalgamated teams, the best from nations, the best from the IC, we're at the theater level, we're putting together intel all the time. These analysts take very strong positions based on truth to power and policy decisions would not then come out that, you know, they would have a thought on the way the theater campaign should continue and it would be the opposite of what they might recommend. And these young analysts were just like, they just don't see it. And you'd have to sit back with them and say, no, they actually do see it. They're acknowledging the insight that you're providing, but there is a political decision or a policy decision that is weighing that as a basic truth, but they're going to maybe take some risk and see if they can change the calculus of the discussion. And that was a really hard thing to communicate with young analysts because they would get absolutely so they were so good at what they did they were so thoughtful about the their trade craft they laid it out it should have been obvious to the senior leader this is the truth the senior leader then takes that in you know whether it's the ambassador or the four-star but because they're weighing other equities and there's other strategic levers they're trying to manipulate they do something that is not that the analysts don't agree with. And you have to go back as kind of the Intel person and kind of help them understand Intel and policy have different roles and you can't like get discouraged. You continue to show up and do your job. You continue to look at these things from all different perspectives. Um, And you can remember that, you know, the many nights when, you know, we were trying to change the trajectory in Iraq at the time and, in Korea at the time. And sometimes you were going to take chances on policies that represent different, different approaches. And the analysts are thinking this isn't going to end well, or, you know, are you thinking about these second and third order effects? And the reality was the senior leaders were weighing all those things, Mm -hmm. but had made a calculated decision to take some risk or create some trust that maybe wasn't there before. I don't think uh, anyone could have gotten this far in the episode without noticing your sense of humor. Um, You're known universally for your sense of humor. Um, How does your humor factor into your leadership style, especially when you're working on, you know, such important, serious missions? 
Super good question. I learned that humor can be used to actually sharpen your focus, bring you together, create a connection, and also diffuse humor or diffuse tension. And by my nature, I bring a lot of energy and I'm demanding. I am on, you know, I'm pretty relentless. And I, and I, and I realize that that is an energy that is just, wow. And I find if we can, one, they understand, hey, look, we're all in this together. It's not, I love General Alexander had something that made me laugh every time he said it. He'd say, it's only a lot of work for the people who have to do it. He's like, get that done by next week. You know, everything for him. He was was genuinely one of the most brilliant leaders I ever worked for, but also there was never a meeting as serious as it was that he didn't help us relax through his sense of humor, which was always self-abasing. It was never mean. It was never unpointed, but we felt like he was like trying to make us relax so we could think creatively. And I really thought about that in trying to get my team to speak when you're in a large group and you have lots of introverts and lots of extroverts if you could create an environment where you're going to discuss something really difficult, but from time to time, make people kind of like, okay, okay, relax. <laughs> We're going to work on this nuclear fission problem, but hey, this will be fun. And um, so I use my humor intentionally when I see one, I need to make a connection, make relax you a little bit, relax myself. Like if I'm tense, it's like, right. And I also use it particularly at the level that I got to, it can, it can hurt people. I never ever, ever mean to hurt people. I might say something that might trigger something that, you know, might trigger something in their life that I don't understand. So I think you also have to be very careful with it. But uh, one of my favorite, like I, I had people under pressure all the time and we would always try to start like, particularly I'm thinking about Iraq again, but um we had basically editorial boards every Sunday night to kind of project what the long-term analytical projects were for what was coming to be produced this week, but over the next month. And it required you to show up to be very creative when you're exhausted. I mean, you're literally exhausted. And we would literally have the first, we would always have Girl Scout cookies because everyone in America supports their shoulders by sending cases of Girl Scout cookies. So it would always start with some sort of sugar high. And by the way, we would get very particular. If we didn't have all the brands, we would send somebody out to go to the warehouse to bring back, hey, we don't have enough Thin Mints. <laughs> have to discuss, you know, Shia extremism or Sunni, you know, we're reconciliation, we need more cookies. But I would have each of them be ready with sort of a National Enquirer headline that could define their story, like film at 11 or something like that. And you find that Intel people by their nature, since they're well-read and they're... they're Storytellers, yeah. Storytellers is hilarious. Um, But it also brings out those that, you know, they, they, I hope they didn't get nervous about it, but they would literally just, we would just be in tears before we would settle down to the serious work. Mm -hmm. Them to understand that what they were about to experience from the general, which was going to be a strict discussion and in some cases a tough discussion about whether the analysis was ready or whether the product was good enough, that I love them. We start with that. We create that connection that I love you, and now we're going to get on to work. And I find that if you can constantly remind people as hard as we all work at the end of the day, 
we're going to remember nothing but the relationships we create here and what we're able to accomplish together, that humor is helpful. One of the mantras that I love is, uh, of yours is to hold your friends accountable for their potential. Can you tell us what you mean by that and share a story about a friend who has done that for you? Yes. Um, I, you know, you asked about mentors and people that had influence. Um, you know, I, I never had sisters. I had four brothers and, you know, grew up in a fraternity. So I outsourced myself to families that had girls and always valued my friendships with, with my, my girlfriends growing up. And in the military, you're, you come in again, you're hopelessly outnumbered, <laughs> but you, you form life friendships um, with, you know, with both men and women. But in, in, in a case where early on in my officership, when I was at the at basic, of course, I, I met someone and I met a few people that they were other female officers. We, you know, would find ourselves in class together or whatever, but we would think about our careers and what we were hoping to accomplish. And I, I can never, I can never attach the word ambitious to my name. I, I did not have ambition. I had intent to be competent. So I never thought about the next rank. I just was always worried about making sure I delivered at the rank that I was at and never let my organization down. And my, I made some friends who would be lifelong friends. They're still people I call today if I have to make a hard career decision and I'm feeling a little weak in the knees. And they do the same. In that um, I would be offered things at points in my career where I would start to question, am I ready for this? You know, have I had all the right jobs? Have I prepared myself? Because I am somebody that does prepare. You know, when I was a young lieutenant and I realized, hey, in three years, I'm going to be a company commander here's all the things I see my company commander do that I don't know how to do. So I had a little green notebook that said, if I get a chance to do some of these things, let's color some of those in. Cause I don't ever want to say no to that opportunity, but I want to be ready. I don't want to be average. I want to, I don't want my soldiers to suffer through my development. I want to come in with something to offer. So when you have that mindset, sometimes you talk yourself out of jobs. And so I found it useful to have friends who understood how hard I worked and how passionate I was. And that ultimately, because I know how to team with people, if I get in over my head, I do know how to grab the life preserver of other people that can help me and help the organization. They would hold me accountable and say, Mary, you got to take that job. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, what are you crazy? You're going to take that job. And there were just times that I check in with my friends. I'm not one of these people that calls all the time. I'm, you know, I'm just somebody that will check in. How are we doing? What's the next career thing you're working on? But we, we call each other when we're getting ready to make big decisions about next move or got these options. What do you think? And I'm somebody that never really did ask. Like I never asked my parents if I should do ROTC. I didn't ask for advice. I, I followed my instinct. So it was different to me. But I like the fact that there were other professionals in the intel community that had paved the path, either in the Army or the IC, that could look at me and say, but of course you belong there. <laughs> Why are you holding yourself back? And I was a junior officer and I was doing things well, but sometimes I was being asked to take jobs that just seemed beyond my reach. Mm -hmm. Those friends would say, but of course. And I look back at the number of times I gave them that same thing. And my really good friend who was with me from when I was a lieutenant to now she's a general officer at West Point, 
we never got to serve together in 20 something, 25, 30 years. But we were convinced we married the same man because our husbands went through maturity evolutions about the same time. And we often talked to each other about big career moves. And she went off and did something. She's a dean. She's the first female dean at West Point for academics. She's brilliant. She's a PhD, Colonel Jeb or General Jeb. And there were times when Cindy was going to go off the path and just needed somebody to tell her, you got to go do this. Mm-hmm. Times she knew I needed to hear even offered that job or they're thinking about you for that job. And I hear you saying, you don't think you should have it. Let me, let me just give you a reality check. You're going to go after that. And it's not based on like belief. Although I would believe she could do anything. It was based on an appreciation of the work she was willing to do and the work she knew I was willing to do. So I have some friends like that and they put steel in my backbone when I need it. Two weeks before I took command, I was in the Balkans. I was taking battalion command, and the person I was replacing said, hey, I need you to take care of yourself today because I need to go do something. So I went down to the motor pool, and I spent all day with my mechanics. And I never forgot the two hours I spent with the private. The, the NCO and war officer, their minds were exploding. But he is taking me through everything he does from supply requisition because most smart people know your budget is controlled by this 18-year-old. If he has a bad day, your budget may go away. And he was so passionate in making sure his future battalion commander, someone 20 years older and many ranks above him, knew everything I needed to know. I became his battalion commander that day. He knew I knew how to walk around his motor pool and wouldn't be a disgrace to him. He knew I knew my business because he was teaching me that. So I would say to leaders, my friends don't give me free passes. They tell me I can go get things because they see me prepare. Um, but I would also say um, you don't have to have the job to prepare. You can prepare on the way by being respectful of everybody else's contribution and asking them to teach you. Well, taking the opportunities too that are you know that are there. Sometimes you don't you don't grab onto them because you feel oh why do I need that or what do I need to have that for and. Yeah. You know, if an opportunity is presented, take it. If you have the time, you have the wherewithal, you know. Yeah, well, you've not? had some fantastic, like, professionals so far, Megan, on this. And their their careers are so interesting because they are at the their penultimate intelligence officers and professionals. They have been, you know, they have been the presidential briefers. They have been the last person to talk to the president to explain, here's how it all comes together. Um, they have run these large organizations. They have created the vision for NGA. You've had all these women. And if you look at their careers, they have had, they've been exposed to every part of what they would eventually own. And they probably had somebody tell them, yes, you got to go do this resource job. Yeah. You'll thank me later. Or yes, you may want to pay attention to this maintenance class because you'll thank me later. And and then if you learn to see it that way, when you lead those organizations, you treat everybody in those organizations as part of the essential core. And you have respect and engender trust with them because you understand the business. And I actually took over INSCOM, which is the Army's Intelligence and Security Command, the best job. <laughs> it is Disneyland's all day pass. The G2 is fabulous. 
but the most fun you're ever going to have is to be the, the operational intelligence commander because your people are all over the world and you're just doing amazing things. But the second day of command and all the old CGs called me and said, Mary, congratulations, you know, don't screw it up. You get all that great encouragement, like you got the job now, make sure you don't blow it. Um, the second or third day, my lawyers came in and that's when I found out that part of this job was to be the head of a contracting activity and to basically help deliver the services. And it was about $11 billion at the time to not only the army and the army intelligence enterprise, but to the defense intelligence enterprise and certain things. And I had obviously engaged with contractors and contracting commands and contracts and procurement, but I didn't know anything about what my responsibilities were as the head of a contracting activity. And so I called in the IG of the army that had some not so great things to say about where we were on that journey and spent um, eight hours. She'll never get back. And then I enrolled myself and my key leaders in the defense um, acquisition university, which just happened to be right down the street. And we spent painful days to make sure that one, we understood our responsibilities, but two, I, I had a contracting workforce that needed me to speak the language mm -hmm. and me to understand what they were doing for my command. And it was really out of respect for them to say, I'm never going to be as good at you, but I'm going to understand what you mean. You? Yeah. You know, like a linguist, I may never be a, you know, four, four linguist or a three, three linguist, but as a leader, I'm going to understand what you need to stay to be current and I need to provide that environment and those opportunities for you. So I always knew, like, if there was a gap, be certainly, if I looked at my responsibilities, there was a gap, try to get to it before you got the job. What a great advice for the future leaders of the IC. So we have one more question. Um, and I've often been told it's the hardest. Um, as you know, we end each episode um, with the same question. And in keeping with the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you were to give your name, uh, if you were to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? So I had one, uh, my call sign when I was in Korea, the brigade that I commanded a company in, I commanded, or I was an S3 of the brigade and then I commanded, it was the Red Dragon Brigade, Strikes With Fire. And it was the organization that, um, you know, current, I know that you've had General Gibson. Um, we had a, just an amazing group of men and women U.S. and Korean, uh, who we look back at that, we called it the House of Pain because we just worked so hard, but we learned so much from each other. And we had such a great energy that that is an organization. It's where I met the leader that had the most influence in my relentlessness as a major. But when I came back to command it, many of the things I loved about what he did, I brought in and then some things that my mother would have loved. So uh, the Red Dragon Brigade, Dragon Six was my call sign. And it does kind of fit my personality a little bit because the other word that came through on my OERs was relentless. Um, when I see a problem, I know there's a way over that wall. Like I, I, I am convinced that if we figure out what is, you know, what's getting in the way and we can move that aside, that we can enable people to be successful and to run freely into the end zone. And when I am told you can't do it or it's going to be hard, I'm curious. And I want to figure out working with other people, how do we make that easier to make our people be successful? 
So either I wondered because Karen was on, or you know, either Dragon, Dragon Six, or Relentless were the two that I that I liked. Oh, I love it. I love it. You know, Mary, I just, I think the best way to describe this episode is that this was a masterclass in leadership. Um, I think people who listen to this episode are going to, I hope they have their notebooks ready because they are just going to get so many amazing nuggets. I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your kindness. Um, I am just thrilled that you joined us and I hope you had a good time. I sure did. Um, thank you so much. Well, Megan, to all of you and to all of you, one congratulations on this. I think it's so important because when I looked up as a college student, I could not have found the role models that looked like me or sounded like me. I know that when we have opportunities to engage like that, there are 10, 11, 12-year-old girls who are putting themselves on a STEM path or a linguistic path who are going to say, yes, I can, because someone else is coming for. So congratulations to you on this. And also, thank you so much for all that you're continuing to do to promote inclusiveness in our intelligence community um, and the, the dream and the possibility that this is a profession that belongs to all of us. And so uh, keep up the great work and I'll look forward to listening to every episode except this one. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, that means a whole lot. Thanks, Mary. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we would like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time. And that was the episode, Iron Butterfly, Dragon Six. My thanks to Megan Jaffer, the National Security Institute at George Mason University, and the amazing women of the IC. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal 
to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.